Hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing episode outside the studio. I'm really excited today to introduce you to our guest. We're going to have a great conversation about the brain, many, many different facets of the brain, brain health, uh, a diet as it pertains to brain function, spirituality, meditation, yoga as it uh, pertains to brain function. And so our author here who is joining us is a renowned neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Newberg, MD. Um, and his most recent book, which we'll talk about today is Brain Weaver. Cur- cur- <laughs> See, there I go. <laughs> Brainweaver, creating the fabric for a healthy mind through integrative medicine. How are you doing, Andrew? Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your program. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited to to have you here. I love I love nerding out on neuroscience. It's such a fascinating subject. My favorite thing too. Good. Well, we're gonna have a great time, I think. <laughs> and I I'd love to dive in with the. I think this is a pretty big question. We'll see what you think um, of defining what optimal brain health means. What, what, are we, what are we talking about when we're talking about optimal brain health? Well, I, I think there's a couple of ways of thinking about optimal brain health. Uh, you know, the, one of the most important things that we talk about uh, in the book is that we're, we're talking about balance mm-hmm. and everybody has to think about what balance means for them. There isn't a universal balance, but everybody has to balance their own brain, their own ways of thinking, um, the ways in which they keep their brain healthy. And so that may have something to do, as you mentioned, with diet and nutrition. It may have to do with uh, practices that a person may do, exercise, meditation. Um, it may have to do with uh, you know, how they manage the different thought processes that come in. I mean, there's, there's a value to being stressed. There's a value to being anxious. Those are, those are important defenses that we have. But if it becomes too much, then the brain, you know, that becomes imbalanced and then you start to have issues and problems with the brain. So, so that's, that's one important point about optimal brain health. And I, I think the other thing to just start out by saying, and you mentioned this also a little bit in the introduction, is that when we think about our overall health from an integrative medicine perspective, we think about the person along four main dimensions. We think about the biological the psychological, the social, and spiritual. And again, for a person to achieve optimum brain health, part of it is how, how all of those different dimensions of who we are get used. And again, each person may have different ways of doing that. Some people may have a very rich religious and spiritual life. Other people may have less of that and may be more interested in their social life or something like that. So th- there isn't a one size fits all. And, and maybe that's the most important piece about optimal brain health, which is that it really needs to be individualized for each person. And that is a primary goal of what we do in our Department of Integrated Medicine, which is try to focus each person on what works best for them and to create a program that works best for them. And this is what we also try to do in Brainweaver, which is to try to give people the right suggestions to direct them down the paths that will help them to give them their own optimal health. Mm, yeah, thank you. And you mentioned this is one thing I wanted to discuss with you a little bit is integrative health. Um, I, I think is at least in terms of Western medicine, a relatively new term, and also functional medicine. Right. Um, and I'm wondering if if listeners are hearing that term for the first time, if you could explain a little bit more about what that means. I think it's kind of 
maybe for some of us intuitive, it might feel like a silly question, but I think it's important because we're used to Western medicine um, focusing on like the symptom and the pharmaceutical approach or the surgery approach to explain or expound upon what, what we mean when we say integrative or functional medicine. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, um, well, certainly there's some overlap, a substantial overlap between functional medicine and integrative medicine. Functional medicine does work more on addressing different functional processes in the brain and the body um, and how they ultimately contribute to disease. Um, so that that's certainly a part of integrative medicine. Um, and I appreciate what you were saying also about integrative medicine versus Western medicine, which has unfortunately been the way a lot of this has occurred, which is the versus, you know, that you either get the medications or, you know, you, you take this, the natural supplement and, and modify your diet. And part of what we really feel is, is what integrative medicine is all about is a true combination. It's a true blend. In fact, we like to say there really shouldn't be integrative medicine and regular medicine. It, it should just be medicine. But what we mean by that is that you're going to take what has traditionally been considered to be medicine, medications. I always tell people, look, if you need a medication, uh, if you need an antibiotic, if you need a medication to control your cholesterol, I have no problem giving somebody those medications. But if I can work with you on those other dimensions, the other biological, social, psychological, and spiritual dimensions, if I can help you to meditate, to reduce your stress, if I can work on your diet and nutrition to reduce the amounts of saturated fats and, and you know, the, the things that contribute to high cholesterol uh, to get those lower, um, if I can make sure that you have good support, social support to make sure you're eating well and doing all the things, you, you know, that those are very, very important and very necessary ways of trying to approach the whole person. So for us, integrative medicine is approaching the whole person in an individualized way, taking the best of what we currently have in traditional current Western medicine with evidence-based approaches that sometimes people refer to as functional medicine. Sometimes people refer to them as alternative medicine or mm -hmm. complementary medicine. Um, we're never really love those terms because we don't want it to be that this is an alternative or this is something separate, but it really should all be part of, of what people think about when they think about their health and well-being. And, and we're even trying to begin to build this more into the education that uh, our physicians get in medical school. You know, almost I, I gave a talk on nutrition one time and the students came up and said, yeah, you know, we, we had a lecture on heart disease, on diabetes and, and uh, uh, cancer and stroke. And they said that the, the number one cause is that people are obese and they're eating badly, but no one ever told us how to fix that, you know, how to, mm -hmm. how to tell them to not eat, uh, to eat better. And I said, yeah, well, that, you know, this is what we got to do. We got to get people to that different kind of perspective that gets more preventative and really helps people to, to use the natural pathways that, that are open to us to help us with our overall health and, and well-being. Yeah. And that's what you, you're touching on a subject I'm so passionate about. It's something that I, uh, have, I, I work one-on-one -on -one with clients, um, and have a health coaching practice as well. And I happened to open a chapter two today and just jumped off the page at me. Chapter two is your brain starving to death. Our solution, the think better diet. And if you would indulge me, I just wanted to read this first paragraph because I think Please it's do. really poignant. So many people consume an excess of calories and have an excess of body fat, yet at the same time, they are starving in their brains. The quote, you are what you eat is never truer than when referring to the human brain. 
Are you eating food that energizes and nourishes your brain and body or food that depletes you and makes you dull, fat, and sick? All of the food you eat ultimately intersects with the hardware of your brain and influences how it functions. So I could go on and on about this topic, but I want to hear from you as the subject expert about, I think what happens, at least for me in my experience, is there's this overwhelm of fad diet or new diet, or uh, this is the thing that is going to, you know, oh, everybody's scared of fat. Everyone's scared of saturated fat. And then a keto diet comes out, right? And then everyone's scared of eating um, meat because, you know, the way to go is veganism. And there's so many different reasons to eat vegan. I'm not saying it's just scared of eating meat. But, you know, just as an example Mm -hmm. of like, where would you even start if you had this kind of overwhelm in terms of, well, who do I listen to? And how do I know what's going to work for me and what's actually true when I'm researching diet and nutrition? Uh, Well, those are all great questions. Uh, You know, in terms of what people can do, I mean, obviously, you know, we try to provide in the book uh, some descriptions about the dietary programs that we use in our center. Um, I I think your point is very well taken that it's challenging to know what the real data is uh, when you go out there into the world and look at these different low fat, high fat, you know, different kinds of diets. Um, Interestingly, you know, there is a fair amount of research that has been out there. Um, Many of these uh, more well-known diets like the keto diet, like the Mediterranean diet, uh, there's something called the DASH diet. Uh, These have been shown to be beneficial in certain regards, um, specifically with regard to weight loss, which then contributes to reductions in things like blood pressure and, and sometimes and cholesterol levels and so forth. So, um, you know, on one hand, that can all be helpful. We try to take a little bit more of a pragmatic look and, and also, again, still based on what the literature is. So part of what we say to people is on a very global level, we want to try to get people to a more plant-based, more protein-based diet. Um, so by plant-based, we don't necessarily require or suggest that people become vegan, although that's certainly, you know, one avenue. Um, But we certainly want to try to encourage people to bring in as much vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, and so forth into their diet that all the research suggests that, you know, especially when you get your protein sources from plants instead of from meats, um, that people do better and have healthier brains. And in fact, there have been studies that show that the, you know, that the the typical Western diet, um, especially with a lot of high saturated fats and a lot of carbohydrates and the bad oils and so forth, actually makes people, you know, as you said, you know, more anxious, more depressed and so forth. It actually makes you feel lethargic and, and turns down your brain's function. And in that context, uh, as you were just speaking to, um, it, it kind of starves the brain for the nutrients, for the energy sources that it needs. When you go to a plant-based, protein-based diet, you're bringing, you know, especially when you bring it in with some of the good oils like olive oil and so forth, some of these things that are part of the Mediterranean-based diet, um, those oils are necessary for the way the brain functions. We, the brain has certain fats that it needs uh, to, to form the cell membranes and to form the what's called the white matter, the connecting fibers between different uh, parts of the brain. So those are all kind of the overarching points that we make. And, and the last thing I'll say in the moment is that I think another answer to your overall question about like, what should people do? Um, part of it is you have to kind of start with yourself, you know, and we do this when we meet with all of the patients that come into our center, we start out by saying, tell us what you eat, you know, what are you doing right now? Um, what are you doing? And then we can help them figure out 
what are you doing that's good? Uh, what are you doing that isn't so good? What are the things that we can do to replace the things that are problematic? And so, you know, I, I'm sometimes concerned about these kind of overarching diets that say you have to do this, this, and this, because again, I don't feel like there's a one size fits all. And the keto diet might be a great diet for the right person, but it might be a completely wrong diet for a different person. And wrong could be for a lot of reasons. It could be that you can't do it. You know, you just don't like the foods on it. It could be that you have, you know, really high cholesterol issues and problems, and that's really not what you want to be doing, you know, for example, or you know, you could have other issues that might make a keto diet problematic. So, so part of what we always try to get people to do is to take some stock in who they are, what they like, what their current diet is, what their issues are, you know, what is the problem? Do they have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, you know, what's going on, and then try to formulate the diet around what is most effective. And, and that's why, uh, you know, trying to, to pull, uh, you know, some of these fad diets out to me is always a bit problematic and trying to work with an integrative doctor or hopefully take advice from people who are integrative doctors um, to really help the people to individualize what they do as part of their diet is always going to be the best approach that a person can take. Yeah. I'm wondering about, I'm thinking of some specific examples I've experienced where people will tell me things like, I don't like cooking. I don't like vegetables. I just don't like the way they taste. Uh, I would, I probably eat 95% of my meals uh, via takeout and um and then there's the added on top of that i heard i've heard this one before but i want to be vegan and i think that there's there's this kind of mentality that there anything that has a vegan labels vegan label stamped on it is a health food which right. it can be really packed with a lot of bad processed stuff just because it doesn't yes. have an animal product and it doesn't make it healthy that's right. right that's exactly right so what would you, <laughs> with this kind of, if somebody walked into your office and said all of those things, what would you do with that person? Well, so, uh, you know, I think that's a great point. And, and so a little bit of what I was trying to get to in the last, uh, my last point um, is that, you know, it has to be individualized to the person. I, I could give you, or I could give a patient that comes in a fantastic diet, eat all these, you know, vegetables, eat, you know, cook this way or whatever. And if they say, thanks. And then they go home and they never do it. I, I wasted all of our time. So, so part of, that's why I say, I mean, part of it is you have to take some stock in who they are, what they can do, what they feel comfortable with. Um, now, you know, we, one of the great things in today's world is that we happen to have so many great alternatives. So uh, we can get into a more detailed, okay, you don't like vegetables. Well, you know, let's start to go through them. You know, you, you don't like broccoli. No. Okay. You don't like cauliflower. No. Um, you know, Brussels sprouts. Oh, you know, I used to like Brussels sprouts when I was a kid. Oh, okay. You know, like, so, you know, people sometimes make these universal statements about, I, I don't eat vegetables or whatever. And, and maybe as you start to, you know, get into the weeds with them a little bit, um, it becomes, you know, you can start to tease out what, what options may be there and what may be available to them. So, so we do try hard to work with each person, get them to think about their strengths and their weaknesses in terms, I mean, if somebody's got a big sweet tooth, we've got to accommodate that in some way. You know, we can't just say, right, me too. And uh, I mean, they have to be able to have a little bit of what they need and whether that comes in the form of a, of a chocolate protein shake or whether they actually need, you know, chocolate ice cream or whatever. I mean, you know, we, and then, and then you get into other things. Okay. Well, you know, you have to have this. Well, let's at least make sure you have it once a month instead of, you know, once a week, uh, let's have it, 
uh, have one, you know, a quarter of a cup instead of a half a cup or something like that. So there's a lot of different ways of trying to work with people to get to a kind of dietary program that works best for them. Because ultimately, you know, if they're not going to do it, then it doesn't help anybody. And so we do try to, to get them to something that they feel comfortable with, that they can work with, and that they will enjoy because that, that is your best chance at, at creating a, an optimal diet to create an optimal brain. Yeah. So I have one more question on the food nutrition uh, theme, and then we can we can start to change topics. Okay. <laughs> um, and that is, uh, well, actually, I have two more questions. I lied. <laughs> this is my favorite subject. That's right. So, <laughs> the first question is, what are your thoughts on macrobiotics in terms of proteins, fats, and carbs in relationship to, uh, you know, the standard 2000 calorie a day recommended diet for the average, I'm not sure if that average is based on like the average American male age, Probably. what, what, I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm curious about what your thoughts are on, on that idea of balancing our macrobiotic intake and keeping it within a certain calorie threshold per day. Mm. Um, well, you know, we, we tend to, in our own practice to not typically have, you know, very absolute defined numbers because each person is different and some people do need more. Some people need less. Um, again, you know, we try to take into consideration different issues and diseases that a person may have. Um, some people may be, we try to get to another concept called precision medicine. And sometimes we actually suggest to people to monitor their blood sugar over a period of, uh, you know, a couple of weeks and see which foods really contribute to spikes in their blood sugar. And that's okay. You know, maybe that's not something that's, that's useful or good to have. Um, you know, so, so we do try to work with people as best as we can. And then we, you know, we try to get them to a good, uh, a, a balance of the proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, which ultimately, you know, we want to get that not necessarily balanced, meaning equal across all of those. Um, but usually we try to get them to a much higher percentage of proteins, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, on one hand, I know people like to have, okay, you know, it's, it's 20% this and, and 1500 calories that, and, yeah. um, I, you know, our, our view tends to be kind of the longer, uh, more, more subtle, more individualized view of trying to find each person to, to get to the right kind of program that works best for them. So, uh, I, that may not be as defined an answer as maybe some people would like, but but we tend to feel that it, we do better when we get people to, to just sort of work towards their overall ways of thinking about eating and then the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. But one other point I'll make, and I'm not sure this is maybe just a little tangential, but the other thing that I, you know, that I do remind people about is that when it comes to things like your diet and nutrition, sometimes small tweaks actually can have major effects when you look at it over a long period of time. And so, you know, sometimes we'll have somebody who comes in and um, they'll say, well, you know, I have a, a, a glass of, you know, a big glass of wine at, at uh, every dinner. Oh, okay. You know, well, can, can you, can you have, you know, half of a glass of wine and you can still enjoy the wine and they're like, well, okay, you know, yeah, sure. That's not a big deal. But, you know, if you, if you knock that out, let's say it's a hundred calories, but you now multiply that by 365 days out of the year, that's, you know, that's 35,000 calories, which is like like 10 pounds, 12 pounds. So by making a tiny effect, you can actually have a very profound, you know, long, and then if you start multiplying that over years, 
um, it really can have a very big impact on people. So when it does come to sort of, you know, the overall um, macromolecules that people uh, eat and so forth, you know, we, again, we, we try to tailor it and then we try to you know, help them to find uh, what works best for them in their own balance. Mm, yeah, thank you. That's a really good example. I like that. <laughs> um, I love that, uh, the ability to zoom out and be like, well, okay, this this micro change is the effect that it has on your life over the course of a year, over the course of right. 10 years, over the course of your, life, of your yeah. lifetime. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So, okay, so I was having this uh, discussion with a friend of mine the other day about they were saying, well, you know, I've had a lifetime of bad habits of eating, you know, bacon and um, hot pockets and soda. And, and so now that I'm in my sixth decade, it feels like it almost felt I almost felt like this person didn't say it explicitly, but it sounded like, oh, well, I just, it's too late for me now. And so I think my question around this is, it might not be such a specific question, but is it ever too late? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is it ever too late? Which I said, it's never too late because I have the belief that our body has the capacity to heal and um, really nutrition plays a huge role in that. I would go so far as to say 80%. If you make that change, however old you are, you're going to start seeing a significant change in the way that your body responds pretty quickly. And so I'm wondering if you could answer the question of, is that true? You know, can you eat unhealthy for the majority of your adult life, start making a change in your later years and not have that, you know, really adversely affect your your golden years you know in terms of brain cognition in terms of physical body function what are your thoughts on this um well i mean look i mean obviously when people have many many years of of bad habits and bad eating whatever issues have begun that's part of who they are today Mm -hmm. um however as you were also saying uh if you make a change today going forward you can reverse a lot of those changes and or you can at least prevent them from continuing. And so, you know, if somebody was fortunate enough to have the genetics that allows them to eat badly and and get to their 60s and and be relatively okay, um, that doesn't inherently mean that they're going to be okay into their 70s and 80s. And so if you can make those changes today, um, then that sometimes can be a very powerful way the body will adapt and change. And you can, again, you, you can even reverse some of the effects that have been observed. We have been doing a variety of studies. Like for example, we've been doing a concussion study where we're, one of the interventions is just to modify a person's diet. And there are so many people who are just like, wow, you know, my brain just woke up, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, that, which is in and of itself is another problem, which is that sometimes people say, yeah, you know, I'm 60 years old, I'm totally healthy. And then you fix them, you know, you fix their diet and you do some things like, wow, I didn't realize how bad I was, <laughs> you know, like now I have suddenly so much more energy. I'm thinking clearly um, that I hadn't been doing before. So, um, you know, it, it's certainly uh, something for people to realize that, that as you begin to engage new behaviors, new habits, especially new dietary habits, uh, it really can have a very dramatic effect, you know, even if you've been doing a lot of bad things over time. And, and part of, you know, we do like an executive health program. Uh, a lot of times that becomes a wake up call, like, wow, you know, did you realize that you, you really have a high cholesterol? Did you realize that you are already have some pretty substantial atherosclerosis in your heart uh, or, you know, your, or, or in your arteries to your brain? Um, we've got to work on trying to 
to get that uh, back down. And um, and by doing the right, you know, doing exercise, doing nutrition, uh, maybe appropriate supplements to help with uh, you know their overall health and nutrients and so forth. Um, we, we've been able to show that the brain can actually wake up and, and start working a lot better. Mm, I love that. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> you validated me. So I, I do want to talk about stress in the brain. And there's kind of a bridge question here, which is this, you're probably not going to like this question. <laughs> well, maybe you will. I don't know. Give it a whirl. Uh, so I think I wonder a lot about you know, we we know for sure that stress is really harmful for not just the brain, but the body, right? We see a lot of different chronic diseases develop as a result of stress. I think my question about this is, what is worse, a crappy diet for your whole life or stress? <laughs> uh, well, well, they both can be very bad for you. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if anybody's ever done a head-to-head -head comparison, but... Um, uh, they certainly can both be bad, and and when you put them together, they can you know be synergistically problematic for people. Mm -hmm. But um, the other thing that I'll say, and and I don't know if this is a, a, at least a helpful way of answering your question, is that you know stress by itself isn't inherently bad. Um, you know our our body develops because of stress. So I mean when we you know, even when we're in grade school and we start learning, you know, how to add numbers, that's stress. You know, you're putting your brain under stress. And sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with problems at work, you know, the more you practice it or, or you take athletes who, who train to be good, you know, in those critical situations, well, those stressors are what strengthen the brain and help the brain to be able to grow the right connections to be able to make it work as effectively as possible. It's just like lifting them, you know, building your muscles. You stress your muscles and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger if you stress them the right way. Mm. When you stress them the wrong way, when you overstress them, which is obviously what I know you're talking about, that's when, you know, the, whether it's the brain or you can pull your muscle, you can tear your muscle, you can break your bone and you can break your brain. And so, you know, at some point when the stressors become too great or for too long, then they really do become very detrimental. And in those cases, uh, it really can become problematic, you know, and again, the same sort of point with the diet is that, I mean, I guess, you know, almost, you know, there's almost no diet that is completely horrible because there's at least some vitamins, nutrients, you know, even in some of the worst fast food. Um, so, you know, you do get something out of it, but obviously just like too much stress when you have all of those bad fats and processed foods and chemicals and all that, um, it leads to usually some very, very bad outcomes. Um, and, and, and one other answer to your question too, which is why it's probably challenging to answer is that again, everybody's a little different. And, you know, some people handle stressors very well. And so if you give them a fair amount of stress, their body may be fine with it. And, and yet if you give that same person a bad diet, they may, you know, have a heart attack when they're 50. And then you have to take somebody else completely different who has a perfect diet, but is under a lot of stress and, and they die at 50 from a heart attack, you know, so, um, so it really does depend a little bit on each person and what, how they're built and, and how, you know, what their genetics is about that kind of yet lets them uh enables them to be able to deal with these different problems uh that that are affecting them and, and i guess maybe the last last thing to say is that having a bad diet is itself a stressor so you know it's, yeah. it's a biological stressor when you have all these pro-inflammatory foods and that does cause a lot of problems for people uh, okay I, <laughs> my mind's going in a million different directions so um I think I think what I want to know is why 
let's assume we're talking about the stress that is chronic, that is not helpful for growth, that is um, kind of that insidious thing that is always there for us. Right. And we're not really dealing with it in a healthy way. Why is that so bad for our brain? So, you know, stress itself uh, is bad for the brain on, on several levels. Um, when it comes to how the brain works, um, first of all, uh, you know, you have these different neural connections that are always firing and the brain is in a kind of balance. So when you have a stressor, usually it starts turning on bigger, you know, important emotional areas of the brain. Uh, areas of the brain like the amygdala and the hippocampus, which are part of what's called your limbic system. And so again, that's part of how you identify stress and, and that's good uh, in the short term. But when it gets to be too much, then those areas continue to be on and they interact with a lot of other brain areas. And one of the ones is, is your memory. So now you start to build in memories that are very negative and bad. And, and you know, you're always thinking about the stressors instead of the good things in life. Um, so, so that's part of it is that you almost sort of create a, a neural connection to this stress mm-hmm. and you, you get sort of a, an overall stressed brain. Now, ultimately that's bad for our body because the stressors that we, we experience in the context of the amygdala that connects to our hypothalamus and ultimately to our autonomic nervous system that turns on our arousal response in the, in the body. Now, again, that that's good. You know, that helps us to get out of danger in the short term. But when it's on for the long term, it increases your heart rate, it increases your blood pressure, and all of these kinds of things actually wind up having a bad impact on your brain. If your blood pressure remains high, then you know you you can have a stroke. You can uh, it makes you prone to dementia. It makes your your brain itself not work very well. And um, one of the other things that happens is that you release stress hormones again. In, in sh- short bursts, they're helpful. They help us to deal with various stressors in a, in a short-term kind of way. But if they stay on for long periods of time, uh, hormones like cortisol, for example, when that gets into the brain, it actually prevents the brain from forming good neural connections. And so it actually can inhibit your memory. It can make your brain function worse. And so these are some of the real you know, issues and problems that occur over time when people face these kind of long-term stressors. And I know that you're you're pretty passionate about integrating tools such as meditation and yoga to help with uh, brain function. Um, I'm curious if you could talk to me a little bit about specifically how mindfulness and meditation impact brain health. So uh, various meditation practices can be extremely valuable to the brain. Um, the The simple answer to your question is that when you do a meditation practice, part of what's happening is that you're kind of focusing your mind, you're focusing your brain in this case, uh, on a particular task, the meditation task. And why is that important? Well, what we have found in our brain scan studies of different meditation practices is that some of the most common types of practices where you are focusing your attention on your breath, uh, on an object, like an image or something like that, or, or a prayer even, um, you activate your frontal lobes and that's that's located right behind the forehead. Now, the frontal lobes do a lot of things for us, but one of the things that they do is they regulate the emotional responses in the limbic system, the, the amygdala and the hippocampus, as we were just saying a few moments ago, that become overactive. So when the frontal lobes turn on, they, they tamp down the activity that's going on in the amygdala and the hippocampus. So that reduces 
our stress, it reduces our anxiety, it reduces our depression. And then as the amygdala starts to quiet down, instead of turning on the arousal system of the body, it turns on what effectively is a quiescent system of the body. It relaxes us. It turns down our blood pressure. It turns down our heart rate. And so all of these things, it just has all of the opposite effects of what stress ultimately does, revving the body up, increasing your blood pressure and so forth. Um, so by doing these kinds of practices, you help to improve your overall kind of emotional status of the brain, allow your, your brain to be able to work more effectively. And because you're doing all of that, you change all of these physiological processes in the body. Now, interestingly, um, specifically, uh, you know, spiritual practices and meditation prayer, for example, um, we have done some brain scan studies that show that not only do they kind of turn on the frontal lobes, for example, but they also affect some of our neurotransmitter systems and they, they can affect neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, which are very important in our emotional responses. In fact, we found that people actually wind up having uh, higher levels of serotonin and higher levels of another neurotransmitter called GABA, which stands for gamma aminobutyric acid. Um, the GABA is where some of the main anti-anxiety medications work. And of course, serotonin is where most of the antidepressant medications work. So if you can just do this naturally by doing a, a simple spiritually oriented practice, or you know, even if it's secularly done like mindfulness, um, you're changing the neurotransmitter set in your brain and you're allowing your brain to function better, to reduce your, uh, your, your stress, your anxiety, your depression. And it actually helps your cognitive processes improve as well, because those emotions are, are, are sort of tamped down and it allows your frontal lobes to work well and help you concentrate. Uh, and they're connected to your memory areas as well and, and helps you remember things. So there are a lot of good benefits that meditation can do. And, um, and, and maybe one other way for people to think about this is that, uh, you know, we talked earlier about stress and, and lifting muscle, you know, lifting weights that builds your muscles. Well, meditation is kind of like lifting weights for your brain. And in fact, research has shown that long-term meditators actually literally have thicker frontal lobes than people who are non-meditators. So just like lifting weights for a muscle that makes your muscle thicker and stronger, um, the evidence suggests that when you kind of lift mental weights with doing meditation, your frontal lobes become thicker and they actually become stronger. Huh, that's so cool. Do you, in your research, have you come across any suggested, like, this is the minimum amount of time we suggest you meditate daily for X result? So that is a really important question. And um, what a lot of our research suggests is that uh, on one hand, the more one does, the better, so to speak. Um, however, even very small amounts can still be beneficial. So we've recommended that even if you spend 30 seconds uh, at your desk in the office, you know, just focusing on your breathing, slowing everything down, and just trying to get your mind focused before you now go into the big meeting, um, that helps, that provides a benefit for you. And, and so even short-term practices still can have a benefit but usually the more you do them and the more repetitively over many days, weeks, years, and so forth, that will have a longer term effect and a longer term benefit. But, but people don't, you know, people don't have to feel that the, oh, well, why am I, why should I meditate? Because I have to do it for three hours a day. Um, that's not true. Um, you know, doing it for 30 seconds of, you know, a couple of minutes that can be effective as well. So do you have a daily meditation practice? Uh, well, 
my meditation practice grows a little bit out of kind of my other area of work looking at um, sort of what is called the field of neurotheology, which looks at the relationship between religion and spirituality and the brain. Mm. Um, uh, my practice is more of a contemplative process that has been my own kind of personal meditation on trying to answer uh, big questions about uh, who we are as human beings, the nature of reality. Um, so I don't do a formal practice uh, myself, but it has kind of evolved into my own uh, approach. But it, it's it's very meaningful for me, and it is a way for me to uh, not only kind of stimulate my brain, but also to help me kind of get myself focused and to relax a little bit too. But uh, the main focus is actually more of a philosophical approach, and uh, which which I guess speaks to you know my earlier point as well, which is that there. Are, thousands of different meditation practices. And just as with nutrition, uh, there is not a one size fits all. Every person needs to kind of think about what has value, what has meaning for them, what their goals are, what kind of fits with those goals uh, to try different practices that might work. And then, you know, figure out a program, one or, or several different kinds of things that really work best for them. But, uh, you know, some people are fine with just sitting still and focusing on their breathing. Other people have to move around and, and should be doing, you know, yoga or Tai Chi or something like that. So there's a lot of different factors that go into trying to select the right meditation practice. But, but everyone, you know, can ultimately try to find the practices that work best for them. And yeah. we try to help them do that through brain reading. Yeah, I love that. Uh, yes, I, I definitely agree. This makes me think of uh, a meditation I was listening to recently. It, based on Stoic philosophy, you may, may or not be familiar with this, so I'd be curious to hear. Um, the practice, the particular Stoic practice is to, I believe it's suggested to do this at night in bed before you go to sleep. And it's a contemplative practice where you um, go about your day imagining, or not imagining, but remembering the parts of the day where you felt like, you could have done something better or you could have handled a situation differently and then imagining yourself in that situation again with uh, i guess what i would say would be a more um ideal response or reaction to a certain certain stimulus that you felt like uh, darn it why did i do that <laughs> and imagining yourself in that scenario having that whether it's a conversation or that reaction or that emotional response and kind of just going backwards through your day and contemplating on how you could have done things better um and i know that's not exactly what you were saying you do i love this idea of you said neurotheology, where you kind of ask yourself questions about life and what does that mean and why are we here and is that a practice? And if if you don't want to share, this is completely I'm okay. To. I'm just curious because I've always asked myself those questions too. Well, why did why am I why was I born? Like, what is my purpose? <laughs> why are we all here, anyways? Right. Do you? Is that something that you you might answer to yourself out loud? Would you do research on it? Would you write it down in a journal? Would you have a conversation with somebody about it? Uh, absolutely, all of, uh, <laughs> all of the above. Um, no, I, you know, I, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've written other books that have talked a lot about you know our beliefs and and, and the words that we use. A book called "Words Can Change Your Brain," um, and. Uh, I, I think asking questions to me is the most fundamental thing about who we are as human beings. And the more we engage our brain and the more we engage all the different parts of our brain, our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, thinking through 
questions like the ones that, you know, why are we here and, and what's the nature of the world? And, uh, you know, as long as it doesn't become stressful, as long as, it, you know, we don't get down on ourselves, um, to explore those questions through all the different mechanisms that you just mentioned, our own thinking, um, reading about something, talking to somebody about something, you know, all of those, are, you know, our brain loves to be social, it loves to read, it loves to learn, it loves to question. And the more we engage all of those different parts, um, that to me is what really builds a very healthy kind of brain and a brain that becomes open and understanding, uh, and hopefully ultimately one that becomes compassionate in understanding, you know, how to interact with other people. And, and that to me is where I think the field of neurotheology itself ultimately has to go. I mean, it's uh, neurotheology to me is, is a wonderful uh, field of, of work, of scholarship that uh, really can range from the very esoteric, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Why do we have free will and so forth to um, very interesting kind of combined scientific and, and philosophical questions about the nature of the mind and consciousness um, to very practical questions. You know, should people do a practice like meditation, mindfulness? Should they, should they engage a, a religious or spiritual tradition um, as a way of helping to keep their brain healthy? So there's very practical implications, a lot of which we talk about in Brainweaver. And then there's some very philosophical questions uh, that, you know, we've talked about in other books, like how God can change your brain uh, or how enlightenment can change your brain. And so, you know, these are all different ways of trying to engage those questions and they're wonderful questions. And I think everybody should do the best that they can to, to think about them. We shouldn't be afraid of them. They're, you know, you don't have to be the Aristotles and the, and the Kants and so forth uh, and the Plato's. You, you, you can be just a regular person and try to figure it out and, and talk to people and have fun with doing it. So mm. those to me are the best ways of, of getting your mind and getting your brain going and staying healthy. Yeah, that's fun. I love that. I, uh, I was, as I was getting ready for this talk today, I was listening to a talk that you gave um, and you, I don't think you, I'm trying to remember how this was phrased because I don't think that you explicitly said it, but there was this question of, are we hired, are we hardwired for religion and or spirituality? Does this ring well, a bell? You know, um, no, I, you know, I, I get that question frequently. Um, okay. So the way I like to answer it is, is that I think absolutely our brains are wired in such a way that uh, facilitates or enables us to have religious and spiritual beliefs, experiences, engage in, in, the, in spiritual practices, um, our, the, the spiritual part of humanity and our biological brain seem to map very well onto each other. Um, I always get a little reluctant of the term hardwired, sometimes because it does imply or could imply that there was a hardwirer, um, which there may be. I have no problem with that. Um, but, uh, but whether you are a, a deeply religious person or a deeply non-religious person, the idea that we, we have a brain that has this spiritual side. And for some people, it is, that spirituality is expressed in religion. Um, for, for people who are, are atheists uh, or agnostic, it may be expressed in, in the questionings that you just talked about. It may be expressed in creativity. It may be expressed in music. It may be expressed in, in being in nature or even in science. You know, some of the, to me, some of the most well-known scientists like Carl Sagan and so forth. I mean, th th what they wrote was so spiritual sounding but it, it came from a, a scientific perspective about the interconnectivity of the universe and how we are all part of something greater than ourselves. That sounds a lot like religion and spirituality too. So I think there's a common ground to be found. And, uh, and I think that this is part of how we can 
use a field like neurotheology and, and the integrative medicine concepts that we talk about in Brainweaver to, to help us understand uh, you know, all the different sides of ourselves, our spiritual side, but also how that intersects with our, our biological, our social, and our psychological to, to bring about the optimal kind of brain that we all would love to have. Hmm, yeah, thank you. So I, I wonder what from the book or what from our conversation, thinking about, you know, what would you want somebody to take away from this conversation? Or if somebody is picking up the book for the first time, what is, what is that sort of central theme or message that you want somebody to, to walk away with? Well, I think the main message is that everyone can work towards achieving optimal brain health, and they have to think about it on the, you know, in terms of themselves uh, as an individual person. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And how can they augment their strengths? How can they work within the weaknesses that they have and utilize all the dimensions that they have available to them? Uh, as I've been saying, the, the biological, social, psychological, and spiritual, how can they bring those dimensions of themselves together? To achieve that optimal health, but but hopefully, uh, Brainweaver is a kind of optimistic approach to saying every person can do this, every person can achieve it, uh, and each person has to find their own, you know there isn't a one size fits all, but each person can find their own path uh, to that optimum uh, optimal brain health, and uh, and I think it's very exciting, and I think it's something that that hopefully everyone can can strive for, and and if we do that, I, we'll have a very healthy and hopefully happy society. Yeah. Amen to that. Where can people go to find out about you and your book? How can we connect? So uh, they can, uh, uh, well, the books are, are certainly available on, on kind of major uh, booksellers uh, websites. Um, for me personally, I have a, a website that helps people to explore the topic of neurotheology a bit more uh, as well. And that's just Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. And people can also look uh, look to our integrative medicine website, which is at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health uh, through Thomas Jefferson University. And they can, can find that on the, the Thomas Jefferson University website. Perfect. We'll make sure all of those links get into our show notes so that people can find you and connect with you and follow up. Andrew, it's been Sounds such good. a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Anything else you want to add? Nope. Thank you so much. Great questions. And uh, anytime you want to talk more about any of these topics, there's, there's, we just scratched the surface. There's a lot more to go. I know. And I could go on and on about diet, nutrition and spirituality and health. And I mean, I'm looking at my list of questions and I think I asked maybe like one eighth of the questions I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I'll, I'll just have to come back. Yes, you will. <laughs> Thank you for the offer. that concludes another amazing episode of outside the studio i hope you enjoyed yourself i hope you learned something new maybe remembered something old maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life my <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background she's doing a little happy dance um so daisy enjoyed it Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, 
my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media. Don't know what I would do without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic, musical, genius, Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks, you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.